choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 299 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Command Module Pilot Stuart Rusa. With crew selection complete, it's now time to meet the flight crew of Apollo 14. We will begin with the fascinating life of the command module pilot. Stuart Allen Rusa was born on August 16, 1933 in Durango, Colorado to parents Dewey Rusa and Laureen Rusa. Stuart was their second son. The red hair that distinguished Dewey and Laureen's sons came from her side of the family. The family only remained in Durango for the duration of Lorraine's recuperation from childbirth. Stuart's father was a surveyor, and they moved quite often until the boys reached school age. Then they decided to relocate to a more permanent place in Claremore, Oklahoma, in the early 1940s. Dewey would still travel extensively, but the Russas now had a permanent home and the boys would have a normal childhood. Stuart grew up in Claremore, and that is where he had his epiphany regarding flying. Shortly after World War II ended, Stuart was out in a field near his house when suddenly several P-38 Lightning fighter planes roared overhead. The unique twin-engine, twin-tailed aircraft had become a front-line fighter during the war, and their noisy promenade fascinated the 12-year-old boy. Later, Stu spotted the pilots of the P-38s in downtown Claremore. They were wearing leather flight jackets and had a confident countenance that was almost a swagger. The sight and sound of that flyover, as well as spotting the pilots in public, was a life-changing experience for Stu. He began to develop an interest in aircraft. He bought inexpensive models and assembled them, suspending them on strings from the ceiling of his bedroom. Stewart also enjoyed bird hunting and was known for his quick reflexes using a bolt-action 20-gauge shotgun. This, plus his coordination and reaction time, would serve him well as a pilot. While in high school, Rusa became a member of the Civil Air Patrol, further nurturing his interest in flying. He also had a burning desire to be an engineer, and the Civil Air Patrol experiences motivated Rusa to excel even more in math and science. Excelling in academics, Rusa made state honor rolls on more than one occasion. In 1951, he graduated from Claremore High School, 
and in the senior who's who, Stewart was cited for his intelligence. During the summer after graduating high school, Rusa worked in Idaho for the U.S. Forest Service. This is where he witnessed and became interested in smoke jumper firefighters. A smoke jumper is a wildland firefighter who parachutes into a remote area to combat wildfires. When the summer was over, Rusa reported to Oklahoma A&M College in Stillwater, which would later become Oklahoma State University. There, he studied civil engineering and took ROTC training as part of his curriculum. During his freshman year, Rusa's career goals began to change as his passion for flying steadily grew and overtook his passion for engineering. Eventually, Rusa discovered that a would-be pilot could sign up with the Air Force's Aviation Cadet Program, which only required two years of college instead of a four-year degree. And since his parents had moved to Tucson, Arizona during his freshman year of college, Stu made his decision in the summer of 1952 to reside with his parents and transfer to the University of Arizona in Tucson for his sophomore year in order to get the prerequisite two years of college for the cadet flight school program offered by the Air Force. Stewart also believed that becoming a smoke jumper might help him get into flight school with the Air Force. So, he filled out the application and became a smoke jumper for the U.S. Forest Service in 1953. Rusa parachuted into at least four active fires in Oregon and California during the 1953 fire season. After a brief explanation of his hazardous duties with the Forest Service, Rusa was accepted into the Air Force Cadet Program. He reported to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas for pre-flight training. Aviation cadets at Lackland were taken aloft on indoctrination flights, usually in the Air Force's reliable North American T-6 Texan trainer. After Rusa completed his cadet orientation ride in a T-6, he quickly disengaged his harness when the plane stopped, jumped out of the cockpit, and threw up on the tarmac. Rusa would never forget the first time he was cleared to take off on his own as an Air Force cadet. In the open canopy, with the sun on his face and the roar of the engine filling his senses, he began to sing the Air Force song, Off We Go, Into the Wild Blue Yonder. After Lackland, Rusa began undergraduate pilot training at Spence Air Base in Georgia. It was April of 1954, and aviation classes were designated by the year in which they were supposed to complete training, with a letter that indicated the alphabetical order of the class in that particular year. Rusa's class was designated as 55K. In September 1954, Rusa's class completed its primary training at Spence Air Base. As a side note, some other NASA people who trained at Spence were Jim McDivitt, 52G, Charlie Duke, 59B, and Gene Krantz, 61F. Spence Air Base closed in 1961. Next stop for Rusa was Williams Air Force Base in Mesa, Arizona. Training at Willie 
as it was nicknamed, was more intense and the airplanes flew faster. Rusa and his classmates were presented their pilot's wings on March 13, 1955. He was now officially assigned to become a fighter pilot, having been able to choose his direction by finishing high in the 55K class rankings. Rusa would now fly aircraft that were the top-of-the-line models. Rusa continued to prove himself as a proficient pilot, impressing his instructors at the flight schools. He enjoyed flying techniques like chasing after airborne targets and ground strafing. Stu's first assignment following advanced fighter training would take him to the East Coast, where he would meet his future wife. Now a fully qualified fighter pilot, Rusa reported to the fabled 510th Fighter Squadron, then stationed at Langley Air Force Base in the Tidewater area of Virginia. The Nickel Dime Squadron, also known as the Buzzards, had a proud history that included participation in D-Day flying P-47 Thunderbolts. When Rusa arrived at Langley in late 1955, the 510th was flying Republic F-84F Thunderstreaks and then transitioning into the F-100, which was nuclear-capable. Rusa was now in a front-line Air Force squadron flying a front-line jet fighter. As such, he trained for the unthinkable, a full-scale nuclear war with the Soviet Union. The plan called for pilots to deploy out of bases in West Germany, flying their F-100s over Russia. They would drop down to 50 or 100 feet to avoid the enemy's radar. At carefully chosen points, each man would arm his weapon and execute a series of precise maneuvers, pull back on the stick, watch the airspeed, and exactly the right moment, with the jet zooming up almost straight, release the bomb, which would then follow a two-mile-long ballistic arc to the target. Meanwhile, the pilots would head in the other direction as fast as their jets could take them, to be safely out of range of the ensuing destruction. The planes did not carry enough fuel to reach their targets inside Russia and make it back. The pilots planned to eject hundreds of miles from the base and then, making use of special training in escape and evasion, walk the rest of the way. Decades after the fact, it may be difficult to understand why Stu Rosa, like the other men in the 510th, was prepared to carry out this mission. But in 1955, at the height of the Cold War, the threat of nuclear war was a grim fact of life. Communism was the enemy, and Rusa's desire to defend his country from it was exceeded only by his love of flying. One memorable evening in October 1956, the 510th was invited to a party at the Langley Officers Club. The party was held in a separate room from the main section of the Officers Club, but the folding partition was eventually pushed out of the way and the members of the 510th mingled with other persons at the club. Stewart spotted an attractive brunette among a group of females. Rusa turned to the bartender and said, See that woman right there? I'm going to marry her. Joan Barrett, a traditional Southern belle, was from Tupelo, Mississippi, and attended elementary school with Elvis Presley. 
She was among several Mississippi women, all teachers, who had recently moved to the Tidewater area. They were living in a rented beach house. Joan was teaching at a school in Hampton, Virginia. That evening, the group of women was attending a birthday party at the officers' club. After winning her over with his charm, commitment, strong personal faith, and moxie, they decided to get married. Even though their upbringing had been opposite as children, they realized the primary quality that had attracted them to each other for a lifetime commitment was a mutual spirit of adventure. Since Joan was raised in Southern tradition, it was now time for Stuart to ask Joan's father for his daughter's hand in marriage. Since Joan's parents' first encounter with Stuart was him buzzing their house with his super saber, Stu was a little concerned that he might not receive permission to marry Joan. Stuart discussed his intentions with Dr. John Barrett regarding the veterinarian's youngest daughter, but Stu reported that Barrett was such a talker that he wasn't sure whether his would-be father-in-law had said yes or no. Ruse's confusion aside, Dr. Barrett was so impressed by Stu's flying abilities that before his future son-in-law returned to Virginia, the veterinarian presented Rusa with a list he hastily compiled of houses in the area owned by social and business acquaintances. Barrett wanted these houses buzzed as well. In any case, Joan Barrett and Stuart Rusa married on September 21, 1957 in a traditional Catholic ceremony in Tupelo, Mississippi and took a brief honeymoon in Chattanooga, Tennessee. When Roos's assignment with the 510th was completed in 1958, the Air Force Institute of Technology program sent him back to college to attain a degree. Stu and Joan moved to Boulder, Colorado. Stu was his usual focused, studious self. One incident during his school days in Colorado resulted in what was the only C grade Stuart ever received in his life. Stuart took exception to a pronouncement from his particular professor and abruptly stood up in the middle of the classroom and called the teacher a communist. Nevertheless, Rusa still earned a Bachelor of Science degree in aeronautical engineering with honors at the University of Colorado, Boulder, in 1960. During their time in Boulder, the couple had their first son, Christopher Allen Rusa, born in June of 1959. Next, Stu was assigned to Takikawa Air Base in Japan from 1960 to 1962. His title was Chief of Service Engineering for the Air Force Logistics Command. While in Japan, Rusa's second and third child were born, both boys, John in 1961 and Stuart Allen, Jr. in 1962. During Stuart's time in Japan, Allen Shepard became the first American in space. Rusa's first stateside assignment after leaving Japan began in July of 1962 at Olmsted Air Force Base in Pennsylvania. Not long after his assignment began at Olmsted, he was assigned to a tour of duty in southern Florida during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Rusa was one of two pilots assigned to transport the spy film from reconnaissance aircraft to Washington, D.C. He was issued a pistol in case his courier jet had to divert because of bad weather and the pilot had to protect the film. Rusa recalled that he and the other pilot were never going to divert because the mission was too important. 
The crisis abated and Rusa was back on regular duty at Homestead. While at Homestead, Joan became pregnant with their fourth child. She decided she wanted her child to be born in Mississippi, so she and the three boys went to Mississippi to live with her parents while she awaited the birth of their child. Late in Joan's pregnancies, Stu would drive from Pennsylvania to Mississippi for brief visits. Rosemary Rusa was born in July of 1963 in Starkville, Mississippi. Rusa's career began to get more on a fast track when he was selected for Class 64C of the United States Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School. The curriculum and flight testing would last for a year at Edwards Air Force Base in the high desert of California. By the time Rusa and his fellow class members arrived there in the summer of 1964, Edwards was a sprawling modern facility, but was still the ultimate assignment for pilots. Speed and altitude records were still being broken, as men of valor still sought to fly faster and higher in all types of exotic aircraft that were being tested. Two of the other members of Class 64C had different paths to the cockpit compared to Rusa's experience, but Charlie Duke Hank Hartsfield and Rusa became lifelong friends. By the time Duke and Rusa got to NASA, they were even referring to themselves as the dynamic duo. After a year of intense academic work and cutting-edge flight tests, the top four finishers in final rankings were separated by less than a point. Peter Hogue was top stick, followed closely by Hartsfield, Duke, and Rusa. In 1966, NASA decided to add a fifth astronaut group. Rusa and Duke went through the NASA astronaut selection process together. They went through numerous interviews and tests and continued to make the cut. At the end, the finalists were invited to Houston for interviews with NASA officials, including Deke Slayton. When Rusa's final interview took place, Slayton left in the middle of the encounter to take a phone call. So Stu assumed that he was not going to be selected. But Slayton knew one of Roos's commanders at the test pilot school, and that officer had highly recommended the red-haired Oklahoman. Slayton had apparently decided to accept Rusa prior to the final interview. The fateful phone call from Slayton came in March 1966, giving each newly designated astronaut 30 days to report to Houston. Rusa was one of 19 people selected as part of Astronaut Group 5, also known as the Original 19. The Rusa family moved to the Houston community known as El Lago, located close to the Manned Space Center. As an astronaut, Rusa was a straight-laced conservative family man with a soldier's devotion to his country. He was ready to dedicate his energies to the peaceful war that was Project Apollo. In January 1967, Rusa was the Capcom at the Launch Complex 34 blockhouse during the Apollo 1 fire. In 1969, he served as a member of the astronaut support crew for the Apollo 9 mission as Capcom. Stewart won the Most Valuable Player Award for his work on the Apollo 9 mission. At mission completion, an 18-inch replica of the crew mission patch was hung on the wall of the control room. The flight directors, by consensus, selected the single controller considered most valuable to hang the patch. That was Rusa.
The next major achievement was Rusa's selection as command module pilot for Apollo 14. In late January of 1971, Claremore, Oklahoma's Stuart Rusa blasted off an Apollo 14 on his way to the moon. He was on board the flight that returned Alan Shepard to spaceflight. Rusa was command module pilot and orbited the moon while Shepard and Edgar Mitchell landed. Rusa's responsibility was to be available to fly low over the moon to rescue Shepard and Mitchell if necessary. It wasn't necessary and the crew brought back 95 pounds of rock and soil from the Fra Mauro region of the moon. Rusa nicknamed their ship Kitty Hawk in honor of the Wright brothers. They returned to Earth on February 9, 1971. But Apollo 14 almost ended before it could begin. During the transposition, docking, and extraction phase, Stewart wanted to break the fuel record for docking, and Shepard, seeing the lunar module Antares dead ahead, told Rusa, Gonna break the record, man. The probe from the command module slipped into the drogue receptacle easily, but nothing happened. Something was wrong with the docking mechanism. Finally, with Rusa's tenacity, perseverance, and precision, combined with a delicate and meticulous approach, the command module and lunar module docked and the main latches locked. He did not set the fuel savings record, but the mission could continue. Apollo command module pilots worked harder than the general public realized, particularly when they were flying solo around the moon, fully occupied with their own flight plans. Rusa was no exception observing and taking photos of potential future landing sites and conducting experiments. He also had to take requests for more details from geologists, who upon hearing about a particular discovery would ask him for further observation and clarification. On his 33-hour solo orbit around the moon, Rusa became the first rookie to orbit the moon alone. At more than one point during his solo orbits, Rusa shut down all optional systems. Every unnecessary light was turned off and the interior of the Kitty Hawk was barely illuminated. The only noise was the soft whirring of a fan. And in that darkened interior of a state-of-the-art spacecraft, the country boy from Oklahoma, who had been fascinated by P-38s in the mid-1940s, silently contemplated how, around a quarter of a century later, he had ended up far from home in the most foreign and hostile environment to which humans had ever journeyed. Following Apollo 14, Rusa served as backup command module pilot for Apollo 16 and 17. Based on crew rotations, he would have probably commanded one of the last Apollo missions had they not been canceled. He was assigned to the space shuttle program until his retirement. In total, Rusa logged 5,500 hours of flying time, of which 5,000 hours were in a jet aircraft. He also logged 217 hours in space. In 1976, Rusa retired from the Air Force and NASA with the rank of Colonel. He then became Vice President for International Affairs at U.S. Industries Middle East Development Company, based in Athens, Greece. He returned to the United States in 1977 to become president of Jet Industries in Austin, Texas. 
He later worked in private business in Austin and was owner and president of Gulf Coast Coors, Inc., Gulfport, Mississippi. When Russo was age 61, he developed pancreatitis, later dying due to the complications from the illness on December 12, 1994. He was survived by his wife Joan, three sons and a daughter, and seven grandchildren. Russo was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. His wife Joan died on October 30, 2007 in Gulfport, Mississippi, and she was interned at Arlington with her husband. Even late in his life, Russo still spoke with awe and reverence when recalling his time near the moon. He would often say, I look at the moon all the time, and I say, I was there. Russo received numerous honors, and I will name a few. The NASA Distinguished Service Medal, the Manned Space Center Superior Achievement Award, the Air Force Distinguished Service Medal, the Arnold Air Society's John F. Kennedy Award, the City of New York Gold Medal, the American Astronautical Society's Flight Achievement Award, the Order of Tahad, and the Order of Central African Empire. Additionally, an elementary school in Claremore, Oklahoma, was named in his honor. Russo was one of five Oklahoman astronauts inducted into the Oklahoma Aviation and Space Hall of Fame in 1980, and he was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983. Russo was posthumously inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. One way in which Russo is still remembered is through the Moon Tree Program. Hundreds of seeds flew with him on Apollo 14 to the moon and back to Earth and have been distributed to locations across the United States. In 2005, a moon tree was planted at Arlington National Cemetery in Russo's honor. The seeds were symbolic for Rusa because of his time spent as a smoke jumper. from the show me state this is michael annis your host and i wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 299 of the space rocket history podcast entitled apollo 14 command module pilot Stuart russa hope you enjoyed this episode it was a pleasure to bring it to you if you're looking for old episodes of the podcast the first 126 are available on the archive podcast search for space rocket history archive it should be available on all podcatchers I want to credit my sources for this episode, the Johnson Space Center Smoke Jumper Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Flight by Chris Kraft, the Oklahoma Historical Society, Encyclopedia Britannica, Space.com, and Wikipedia. Well, as most of you know, we are counting down to the completion of 300 episodes. We're now at T-1. I will post episode 300 in two weeks. We will have another Apollo 11 50th anniversary encore episode next week as I will be driving my car and Mrs. SRH across the country 
and won't have time to do a really good 300th episode. So, in two weeks, episode 300. Of course, 300 episodes is a major milestone for the podcast. That is many more episodes than I expected. Of course, we will have a celebration, including the tying ceremony, when I complete episode 300. Additionally, in celebration of the 300th episode, we will have a drawing for the latest Space Rocket History swag. To enter, email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your favorite episode of the podcast. Now, I'm not talking about a series of episodes. Do not send me, I like Apollo 12 the best. I'm talking about a particular episode you liked best, and also tell me why you liked the episode. We will draw five entries from those who participate, and they will win a new prize no one has seen before. It is a custom 3-inch by 3-inch static cling of the Space Rocket History logo patch. I haven't even seen it. It's at my house right now, but I haven't seen it. It sticks to services such as glass. The deadline for the entries is May 14th. That is May 14th, so just send me an email of your favorite episode and why you liked it. Hopefully, we will read some of these emails during the 300th episode. I have had some great emails so far. I thoroughly enjoyed them. I appreciate all the kind words that you've sent in to me. And uh, we have received about 15 emails so far, so go ahead, send it in. It will be fun. We had a really long episode this week, and I found a lot of information on Stuart Russo, so that's why it went so long. The pictures for the episode are available on the website, spacerockethistory.com. And for those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, you may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. In fact, I declined an offer to advertise this past week because I believe the podcast can be supported by its listeners, and nobody wants to hear a commercial in the middle of the content. So... We are entirely listener-supported. Please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. To do so, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation, or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate, as well as they're entered in the weekly drawing. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Kent K. from Ohio donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned his moon emoji. Peter H. donated at the Apollo level and earned his satellite emoji. John H. donated at the Soyuz level and earned his rocket emoji. Per H. from Norway donated at the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji. Robert W. sent in another donation and moves to the Gemini level with rocket emoji. Chris W. pledged on Patreon at the Gemini level. John M. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Mari H. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And Benzina B. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Paul M. donated at the Mercury level. And Ingomar O. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Believe it or not, we are at 222 patrons, with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 320 with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. For the 320 of you who have already donated for 2019, I appreciate it very much. This week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Eric Patterson. 
Eric, if you would email me, Mike at SpaceRocketHistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. We will have the Apollo 11 anniversary episode next week and then episode 300 following that on two weeks from Thursday. T-minus one until completion of episode 300. So long for now.